Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you, whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us online. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And today is week two in a short series that we are doing called Say What? Now, if you read your Bible regularly, I guess I have to pronounce it, Say What? If you read your Bible regularly, it's only a matter of time until you come across a passage or two that just leaves you scratching your head. Sometimes it's a funny little sentence here or there that makes you wonder what it means, but sometimes you come across a story that shocks or surprises you or even makes you uncomfortable. You read it and you say, that's in the Bible? Well, whatever the case is, there are some stories that make us think, say what? And in this series, we are taking a few of those stories, and we're going to try and see how those weird and sometimes shocking stories are, in fact, inspired by God and can still be helpful for our walk with Jesus. But before we dig into today's kind of strange story, let's just take a few minutes and pray together. Lord, we're thankful for the chance to be here. We're thankful for the things that are coming today, the baptism in the second service, the affirmation of new members between services. Lord, we have a lot to be thankful for. But we also have some prayer requests that are on our mind. We think of Jody, Idness, and her family as they lost her dad last week. Be with them as they continue to work through um, the planning and grief process. And God, we think of the start of school. Some kids started on Wednesday. Some are coming up in the next couple weeks. We pray that you be with families. Help them navigate this really challenging time. COVID has made this really hard for many of us to know what the best choices are. And so, God, we ask wisdom for families, but also that they may be able to lean into you and trust you and know that you are their God and that you're with them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let's jump right into it today. Our story that makes us say what is found in the second chapter of 2 Kings, starting in verse 23, and it goes a little bit like this. Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, "'Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head.'" And he turned around And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And from there, he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. (laughs) Yeah, I first heard this story back when I was in middle school, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, this is the type of story that middle school James was all about. I I don't know what your middle school days were like, but for me, the idea that I might be able to ask God to send some she-bears to attack all of the people who made fun of me for being gangly, acne-covered, badly coordinated, that's what I was talking about. That was a reason to go to church right there, to to summon some she-bears. But you know, as I got a little older and became more serious about following Jesus and studying the Bible, um, this story actually freaked me out a bit. Because think about it. You've got the prophet, Elisha, presumably a godly man, 
He is, after all, the chosen and called voice of God to the people of Israel at this stage in history. And on first examination, what it seems like is that he's traveling and a bunch of young boys make fun of him for being bald. So he throws a hissy fit, calls down a curse on them to which God honors and sends two angry she-bears to pummel 42 of the boys who are making fun of him. This story's kind of problematic. It's actually a little disturbing, and it has a whole host of things that offend our modern sensibilities. I mean, why would God choose someone who's so irritable and easily offended to be his main prophet? Why would God respect this curse that Elisha calls down? I mean, a God who sends some she-bears to attack a bunch of unsupervised youths, it doesn't seem like the kind of God we usually talk about in church. But here's the deal. Once we take some time to dig into this passage and look at the characters, the language, the context, this story actually makes a lot of sense and gives us some valuable lessons. But before we look at the characters, the language, and the context, I want to say that not every story in the Bible that makes us uncomfortable can be explained away by examining the details. There are a few stories and teachings from the Bible that we might find offensive to our modern Western ethics and sensibilities even after we get done researching and learning about them. And while that's not something that we like, it might actually be a good thing. And here's why. If our view of God that we adopt never presents us with something that we disagree with or makes us a little uncomfortable, it's probably not an accurate view of God. I mean, how many of us have ever met a self-determining person who, at some point in time, doesn't disagree with us or do something that makes us uncomfortable? If God is real, and not just someone that we've made up, of course he's going to do things differently than we would want or expect. He's not us. God does what God knows is the right thing to do, and that's not always what I think he should do or what I want him to do. I love the way that Tim Keller says it in this tweet. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. This means that there's going to be things that we come across in Scripture that make us uncomfortable. And sometimes it's because of the cultural gap between us and when it was written. And sometimes it's because God is God and I am not, and I don't always hold the same ideas, values, or expectations that he does. But then again, sometimes it's just because we don't understand the passage that well. And today, we are in luck because this is one of those stories where once we understand the details a bit more, it becomes a little less problematic, not 100% less problematic, but a little less problematic and actually pretty interesting. So let's tear it apart. Aha, get my joke. We're talking about bears, mauling kids. We're going to tear apart the passage. Ah. All right. Well, first thing we got to talk about is the context of our story. And this is kind of a little bit of a lengthier history lesson, but it's all important information. So stick with me as best as you can. Because at this point in the story of the Bible, the people of Israel, they've gotten themselves into a mess. You see, the people of Israel, they had a great king. His name was David, same David who slayed Goliath. And before King David bit the dust, he gave the throne to his son Solomon. 
And by the end of Solomon's reign, he had ended up placing a heavy burden on the people of Israel by instituting incredibly high taxes to pay for his lavish lifestyle and his several hundred wives and concubines. So when Solomon passed the throne onto his son Rehoboam, not all of Israel supported him. In fact, only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which is where the family lineage of David, Solomon, and Rehoboam came from, they supported Rehoboam as king. The remaining ten tribes of Israel, they threw their support behind a guy named Jeroboam. Now, one thing led to another. There was a lot of political posturing, some showing off of military strength, and the end result of these two competing kings was a two-kingdom solution. The tribes of Benjamin and Judah formed up under Rehoboam as the southern kingdom of Judah, and then the ten other tribes of Israel formed up under Jeroboam as the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, it didn't take long for this new northern kingdom of Israel to drift really far away from God, because this new king, Jeroboam, of this new nation, Israel, he sensed a problem in his kingdom. He saw that all of his people were journeying south into Judah to go and worship and offer their sacrifices to God at the temple in Jerusalem. And he was worried that if his people kept going to Judah and spending time at this temple, being influenced by the priests who lived in Judah and were loyal to Judah, that eventually their devotion would swing back to Judah and he would lose his kingdom. This is how 1 Kings 12 described it. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They'll kill me and they'll return to King Rehoboam. So what did Jeroboam do? Well, he decided he would build two idols two golden calves, one in a town called Bethel in the south of the northern kingdom of Israel, and one in a town called Dan in the north. And he decided he would create an entire religious system devoted to these idols so that his people would worship close to home and wouldn't have to cross the border and go into Judah where their devotion might be swayed away from him. And this new religious system, it was kind of a cross between the stuff that they had in Jerusalem and some of the stuff that they saw in their pagan neighbors. This is what 1 Kings 12, starting in 28, says. The king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he'd made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. 
Well, as it turns out, most of the kings that followed Jeroboam, they saw his wisdom in this, and they supported and encouraged this new religious system. And over time, the northern kingdom of Israel became more and more and more pagan in its religious life, and it drifted farther and farther from the God of the Bible, the God who truly delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And this is where our story comes into play. Ever since Jeroboam started leading the people away from God, God had been trying to bring the people back to himself. And to do this, he'd been calling prophets to go to Israel and speak on his behalf. And these prophets, they went to Israel and they all pretty much had the same message or some sort of derivative of it. And it sounded like this. Hey, Israel, God called you to be his people. He delivered you from slavery and gave you this land. You agreed to live in the way that he instructed. It's time you give up your pagan practices and your idolatry and you come back to the one true God. And if you don't, God will bring calamity upon you until you realize that your false gods have no power and you return to the true God. So prophet after prophet after prophet went to the Israelites, gave some sort of that message to try and get the Israelites to return back to God. And to help legitimize these prophets, these messengers of God, especially the most prominent ones like Elijah and Elisha, God would often help them do miraculous and sometimes outrageous signs to show that they were actually indeed speaking on God's behalf. And that's really where our story comes into play today. Because you see, our main character today, the prophet Elisha, he had been a student and follower of the great prophet Elijah. I know that's confusing, isn't it? Elijah... He was the leader of the prophets, and he'd been sent to an especially wicked king named Ahab to turn that king away from idolatry and to try and bring the people back to God. But the time came for Elijah to retire, which, by the way, is kind of hard to do when you're sent to a wicked king who wants to kill you, because, like, where's your retirement home going to be when everywhere you go, he's trying to kill you? So God decided that he would just take Elijah straight up into heaven. But before being taken up to heaven, Elijah passed the position of lead prophet onto Elisha. And this is what happens immediately after Elijah passes the baton to Elisha. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Skip ahead a few verses to verse 19. The people of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water, it's bad. In the land, it's unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day 
according to the word Elisha had spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. And while he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now notice that the story of the she-bears mauling the boys comes as one part of three miraculous signs that Elisha does immediately after being designated as the chief prophet. Why does this matter? Well, it helps us understand part of the point of what's going on here. The people of Israel have fallen away, and God wants them to know that this guy, Elisha, he does indeed speak for God. He is to be listened to. He is a messenger from God. So first, Elisha does a sign in front of the prophets, mimicking one of the miracles of Moses, to prove that he is the new chief prophet. And then he does the sign of healing the waters in front of the people to show that he's the prophet of God. And then he heads off to Bethel to confront the idolatrous city. Each of these miraculous events, including the event with the she-bears, is meant to authenticate to everyone that Elisha and his message are legitimately from God. These signs were meant to force the different people to realize they need to listen to Elisha because he has a message from God that they need to hear. So when we read this story, uh, we need to read this not as a random act of anger towards someone who upset the prophet, but rather as an important event in the life of Elisha that helped establish him as the voice of God, bringing a message to people who needed to turn back to God. But let's be real. Um, That doesn't necessarily help make the story more palatable. I mean, couldn't there have been a sign that offends us a little bit less than cursing a group of boys so that two bears would come and maul 42 of them? Well, that's where we need to spend some time with the details of our story. So check out our story one more time. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. He turned around. When he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So there's four questions that we need to ask to help this make more sense. First, where was Elisha going? Secondly, who were these small boys? Third, what was the significance of their taunt? And fourth, why does Elisha choose to curse them? So let's hit that first question. Where was Elisha going? Our passage says, he went up from there to Bethel. Now, if you remember from that kind of long summary of the historical context that I just gave you, the town of Bethel had some serious significance to the kingdom of northern, the northern kingdom of Israel. Bethel was one of the places where Jeroboam had set up the golden calves for the people to worship. And as a result, it was one of the main centers for the northern kingdom's idolatrous worship. Bethel was a religious center for Israel 
and had an entire pagan religious industry with its priests and its different kinds of worship. So Elisha, he's taking a message from God to this city, Bethel. And on his way, he's confronted by a gaggle of what the ESV calls small boys. While he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him. Now, this is one of the parts of the story that we don't like. You know, sure, these boys might deserve some consequences for jeering at passersby, but mauling them with bears, really? Well, here's a few things we need to see. First, the phrase that the ESV translates as small boys isn't actually that straightforward. It's a phrase that's made up of two words. The first word, katan, what the ESV translates as small, is just as frequently translated to mean unimportant or of low social status or insignificant. And the second word, na'ar, which the ESV translates as boy, it's kind of a blanket term that really just means younger, unmarried male. In the Hebrew world, they didn't have a term for what we'd call a teenager or an adolescent. You had boys and you had men. And so this term, na'ar, it was used to talk about all younger males. We see it used to talk about the child Moses when he goes to live with Pharaoh. We see it used to talk about the teenager David when he killed Goliath. It's also used frequently to describe soldiers and warriors. It's simply a term that means a younger male. And this is why a lot of scholars think that this story is actually talking about what we would think of as like a gang of teenager early 20-something ne'er-do-wells. It's a bunch of young men up to no good. Which, if I were you, I'd be asking, well, why doesn't my Bible just translate it that way then? Well, when it comes to words that have a large range of meaning and a context that doesn't demand a specific use, our Bibles will usually choose to translate it in the most generic way so that the reader is given the opportunity to interpret it rather than the translation making a super specific interpretation for you. So, who were these small boys? Well, in this instance, when it says small boys, what you've most likely got is a group of like rabble-rousing, young, unmarried men who confront Elijah on the way into the town of Bethel. Which leads us to our third question. What's the significance of their taunt? Which is my favorite part of the story. These youths, they start yelling at Elisha, and this is how our passage describes it. He went from there from Bethel, while he was going up on the way, small boys came out of the city and they jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Now it's important here to remember a couple details from the previous stories. Elisha's mentor, a guy named Elijah, he had just gone down in history for being the first person to enter the afterlife without actually dying. And this is how 2 Kings 2 describes it. As they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Elijah was literally taken up into heaven to be with God. And this is where it's actually kind of helpful to know some ancient Hebrew. The author uses the same language, the same words, to describe what happened to Elijah. Elijah went up. And to describe the taunt 
that these young men used. Go up, you bald head, go up. So when these adolescents tell Elisha to go up, it's actually a reference to what had happened to Elijah when he went up into heaven. Add to that, it's not entirely clear whether the phrase bald head was meant to be an insult to Elisha's male pattern baldness, or if it was uh, a reference to a haircut that some of the prophets had adopted to designate themselves as prophet. So basically, that statement, go up baldy, it's pretty much like saying, hey you, prophet of the Lord, we don't want you here. Why don't you do what Elijah did and go up, get out of here, go up and die and be with your God like Elijah. You and your message are not wanted in this place. So what you've got is a large group of delinquent young men who come out to confront Elisha as he's getting ready to try and call the people of Bethel back to God. And these young men quite forcefully tell him, dude, get out of here. We don't want you here. We don't want your message here. Why don't you go on up and be with your God like your mentor Elijah did? Leave this place or else. So, why does Elisha curse them? And just put yourself in his position. You're traveling to a town that you know is going to be hostile to your message. And before you get to town to do your prophetic work, you're confronted by a whole bunch of young men, and not really the type of young men that you'd be pleased if your daughter brought home. And these young men start shouting at you to go away. And not just to go away, they say, hey, you, go on up to the afterlife like your friend Elijah did. We don't want you here. Get out. Leave you bald head. Go up, you bald head. This is kind of threatening, isn't it? And Elisha, he's not packing a machine gun. He's no warrior. There's no concealed carry license for him. He's not prepared to fight off what was close to 50 unruly young men. And he's got a job to do. He needs to go up to Bethel. So he does what's really his only option if he wants to carry out the task God has given him. He asks God to do something about it. God, you either take out these youths or they take me out. So he calls down a curse on them. And God, who not only is trying to get his message to the Israelites, but is trying to authenticate Elisha as his messenger, he honors the curse, sends the she-bears, whom all these young men, saving Elisha and making sure the message goes forward. Makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Well, let's try and put all this together. As a specially called prophet, Elisha, he's called to take the saving word of God to the people of Israel and to try to get them to turn back to God. And God knows that his people who have fallen away, they need to hear this message. Whether they turn back to him or not, that's a whole different story. But in God's gracious and loving nature, he wants to get his word to the people who need it. In fact, when these young men stand in the way of Elisha, God makes a way for his message and his messenger to get where they need to go. This story is about God's people needing to hear his word and God authenticating, protecting, and pushing his word forward.
So what do we do with a story like this? Why does it matter for us? Well, what I really want to say is don't make fun of bald people. Or if you make fun of your pastors, they'll send she-bears to attack you. No, those aren't really what the story's about, though. When we read the Old Testament, the group of people that we're supposed to identify with is mostly the Israelites. We are just like them. We may make fun of them for how quickly and frequently they wander away from God, but aren't we just like that? I mean, today we may be gung-ho about our faith, but there's a good chance that tomorrow we're going to be totally consumed by something else. And you know what has been and will always be God's way of trying to correct and rebuke and steer his people in the right direction? His words. And here's the application. God's people need to hear God's word. Even if you're already a Christian, you need to be constantly exposed to the life-saving word of God. Because that is one of the key ways that he helps us not wander away. And in this story, his word comes through the prophets. But for us, since we've got Jesus and have been given the Bible, we no longer need a specifically called prophet to come to us as God's mouthpiece. Instead, we believe that we all have access to God's message through the words of the Bible. That's why 2 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means that through the reading, the preaching, and the teaching of the Bible, we are confronted with the Word of God in such a way where we are continually shaped and molded and called back to God. God's people need to hear God's Word because His words are how He guides and shapes and trains and corrects us. Now, the problem in this story is that there's a group of young men actively trying to keep the life-saving Word of God from getting to the people who need to hear it. And here's the second piece of application. We might not run into 42 youths on our way to Bible study who are trying to insult our haircut and keep us from interacting with Scripture, but there are still all sorts of things in our lives that when left unchecked, try to keep us from being exposed to the message that God has for us. And here's one that I see most often. The much-needed Word of God is opposed in our lives when we neglect gathering with other Christians to learn from scriptures. This one seems so simple, but honestly, I think it's the most common way that we miss out on the word of God that we need. Whether it's because we get too busy or had a commitment that kept us from gathering with the church or whatever the case, it's easy to fall out of the habit of being here and learning together. Just like those 42 boys tried to keep God's word from getting to Bethel, falling out of the habit of going to church makes us miss out on a key avenue where we interact with Scripture in a meaningful and life-changing way. Just as a point of important clarification, I'm not saying that Mike or myself or Laura or Eric are the voice of God for us as a church, thank goodness, but I am saying that in worship... And as we look at scripture in our sermons and in our small groups, we encounter God's word 
in a way that is meant to continually shape and mold us toward Jesus. And we need that. God's people need God's word. Church, this story of Elisha and the bears, it does kind of make us say, what? But even in this story, we see how God was trying to get his life-saving word to his people through Elisha and was willing to send two bears to make sure it got to them. God's people need God's word. So let us be a people to do what we can, who do what we can, to make sure that God's word is a constant part of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. It is a weird one, but we are still thankful for it. God, we're also thankful for the fact that you gave us your word to shape and guide and correct and lead us back to you. Lord, we ask today that you help us identify the things that are opposing your word in our life, the things that are trying to keep it from rooting into our hearts and our souls. Lord, let us be a people who are committed to hearing and studying and doing your word so that we're constantly called back away from our wandering. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this message in your scriptures. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. Thank you.